If you're new here, um, it probably doesn't take a lot for you to notice that we like stories here, all right? Literally the name of our church is Storyline Church. I love stories, all right? If you listen to any of my sermons from previous, you know that they are filled with stories, both from my home, things that I've learned on the internet, (laughs) things that I've read in the past. I love stories, but here's something else. I love the science behind stories. All right, so there's, there's antidotes and there's things about stories that make them tick, that make them really pull at our heartstrings. And one of those big things is called a turning point, all right? A turning point is essential to any story that you look at. They're in every single story that you'll ever find in the history of the earth, all right? Stories always contain a turning point. So turning points are really important because they always have this critical juncture that's taking place in the story. There's been this buildup, there's these things that are happening in the story, and then bam, something happens that changes the whole outlook of the rest of the story. Or there's character development that happens. Like this character was this way, and then this boom, this turning point happens, something happens in this person's life, there's character development that happens, and then the rest of the story looks a little bit different. Well, these are so important. And one of the big things that makes a turning point a turning point is that there is always this, this um, what's the word, the creating, there's this moment of crisis that's created, all right? And so this moment of crisis is created. And one of the classic turning points that I can remember, I feel like this was ingrained deep down inside of me as I was in high school literature, all right? I mean, high school literature, and one of the things that I feel like they ingrained inside of me is a turning point in Romeo and Juliet. Everybody has probably heard of the play if you haven't uh, worked through it yourself. So Romeo and Juliet, it's this five-act play. And at the end of the third act, there's this turning point that takes place. So there's this duel between a, a few of the characters, two people end up dead, and Romeo is banished from the country, which is a really big deal because the whole entire play is revolving around the love story of both Romeo and Juliet. And so from there on out, the whole entire story, it it looks a little bit different. Because now this, this love story, they have to go to these fighting extremes in order to maintain this love relationship that they have. The whole entire essence of the story changes at the turning point of this duel and Romeo being banished from the country because the rest of the story just doesn't, it doesn't seem the same. Well, tonight, as we're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at the eight Beatitudes that Jesus has laid before us, we come to a really critical turning point in the Beatitudes. You see, the first three Beatitudes that happen in the eight are called the need Beatitudes. They're calling out our personal neediness that's going on in our hearts and our souls. These are personal things that as Jesus is speaking out to the crowds, it's likely that their heartstrings have been really plucked and they're really wrestling with the, the essence of what Jesus is calling them to and the weightiness of what Jesus is calling them to. He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have recognized their own sin and also their inability to do anything about it. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Those who not only mourn over the difficulties of this life, the hardships, the things that hit us over the side of the head that feel like a torrential tidal wave that have come and wrecked our life. Not just those things, but I think Jesus is even speaking more so to the own personal hurt, the personal mourning 
that goes on in our life over the sin that we have recognized as we are poor in spirit. Then he keeps going. He says, blessed are those who are humble or meek. Those who know their neediness, their incapability about doing anything about their personal circumstance now because of the wreck that sin has caused on their life. And as he's working through all these things, he concludes these need beatitudes with this moment of crisis. Because here's what I think it, Jesus is trying to stir in the crowd that he's speaking to at that point, but also to us. Well, if, if this is true, if I'm to be poor in spirit, if I'm to mourn over my sin, if I'm to be humble or meek, then I can't live the same. If what Jesus is telling me in these Beatitudes, if what he's declaring to me is true, then I can't keep going and living the way that I was formerly living. Like what, what is the pattern for which I am to live now, Jesus? I'm, I'm at this critical juncture where I don't know what it looks like to function. The way that I used to live, you're saying it's wrecked my life, so now how am I supposed to live? There's this moment of crisis that I think this build up in the Beatitudes is trying to create deep inside of us, this turning point that happens in the Beatitudes. And I think that Jesus gives us the answer to all of our questions with the fourth Beatitude, this transition that's happening in Jesus' statements. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. So here's what I want to do for us tonight, all right? I want to unpack this beatitude because I think there's a lot there. I want to look at and get a better idea of what Jesus means by this term righteousness. I want to unpack that for a little bit. And then I think there's some really important applications for us as we think about how we live in this beatitude that Jesus has called us to. So I want to look at three points of application and then we'll conclude. All right, so let's begin just by opening and opening up and unpacking this beatitude. So here's how I want to do this, all right? So at the beginning of each beatitude, we find this word blessed, all right? And so if you listen to any of the previous sermons, the way that we kind of describe this word is that it means to be joyful or joy-filled, or sometimes we've even said happy. And I think this is really important for us to understand why Jesus would declare and he would start all the Beatitudes with the word blessed. You see, because first, every single one of us can agree in here tonight that we want joy for our life. Amen? Like, you want joy. You want joy. Every single one of us wants joy. But here's, I think, something that's really important for us to see. When Jesus starts off every beatitude with the word blessed, he's not just declaring that you and I want joy, but he's declaring that God wants joy for your life as well. Now, I think this is really important because as you look at God and you think about God and you wrestle with God, you talk with others about God, who is God commonly associated with? Those that aren't fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, this started in the garden. The lie of the garden was that God is holding out on us. Literally, Satan says in Genesis chapter 3, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's the Josh translation. Listen, God is holding out on you. If he really wanted joy for your life, 
If he really wanted you to be happy in this life, then he wouldn't have declared that you shouldn't eat from the tree. And here's the reality, like you're not gonna die. If you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open to the knowledge of good and evil and you'll be made more like God than you were before. That's, that's the lie of the garden, all right? And I don't think that this is something that we have gotten out of our life ever since. This persona about God, about being the one who doesn't enjoy joy, who doesn't want you to be happy, is something that we wrestle with and actually is reinforced in our life on a regular basis. And you don't have to look very far to find it. So first is entertainment, all right? There's literally kind of a whole movie that's built on this thing called Footloose. Anybody seen Footloose? You know what I'm saying? What's the essence of Footloose? There's this preacher that's in small bucktooth America that has ingrained inside of the community that it's a sin to dance. And so the whole entire thing is bucking up against this idea that God hates joy. And there's these rebels that go off and start dancing throughout the rest of the movie. You know what I'm saying? We find it in all of our sitcoms. Two of my favorite, 30 Rock. Who do you have? You have Kenneth, right? The crazy weirdo that has all these weird ideas about Christianity and God. Then the office, you have Angela, the, the hard, tight-knit, like doesn't want to get out, but yet she has all these flaws in her life type of character, you know what I'm saying? But what is the idea that comes from both of these characters? That God hates fun. I mean, the second thing is like just talking with your friends. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people as I've talked with them about Jesus, I've talked with them about God, that have said, you know what, I'm going to put a pause on Jesus because I want to have fun right now. But maybe I'll come back to this idea of Jesus later because they think if you follow Jesus, then it's like all the fun is just ripped out of your life. And then I think you have your own heart. My own heart goes to this place. So here's a little bit of my story. Like my, my family moved a lot growing up. I moved like five or six times before I even got into high school. And so here's, here was my experience, all right? It felt like every time that I got ingrained into a friend group, that I got situated in my school, that God was kind of blessing my life in these particular areas, that he would then uproot my family, transplant me to a new place, and then I'd have to start all over again. And so here's the idea that got fixed into my own soul, is that good things don't last. Good things don't last. God is holding out on me. If he, wanted, if he truly would have wanted joy for my life, he would have kept me in that place with my friends, the place where I felt a sense of comfort, a place where I felt like I belonged, but instead, God, you've uprooted me and I have to start all over again. God's not fun and he doesn't want joy for my life. But what the fourth beatitude is telling us is that this could not be further from the truth. God wants joy for us. He created you for joy. He wants you to have joy. He, he desires joy for your life. And that, that's what the beatitudes are pointing to us, that the blessedness of God is for those that Jesus is speaking about these beatitudes to. He wants joy for your life. But if that's the case, like if God truly wants us to be joyful, if it's something we want for our own life, then what's the real problem, right? Well, here's, here's the problem, all right? 
here's the reason that we struggle to keep hold of joy. It's the problem is not our desire of joy, but our pursuit of it. Our problem is not our desire for joy, but our pursuit of it, all right? We are all on a mission to seek out joy in this life, every single one of us. We are constantly seeking out joy in this life. And we, we use things in order to try to find that joy. Like a lot of the pursuits, a lot of the desires, a lot of the dreams that we think and where we would associate to other things in this life are really none other than our pursuit for joy in this life. Think about your work. You can think about your recreation. You can think about your relationships. I mean, consider your work. Maybe from a young age, you had an idea of a job that you wanted to do. Maybe it was once you got into school or grad school that you really caught a vision for the position that you wanted. Now, here's the thing that goes on inside of our minds. Once I get that position, once I get the role, then I'm going to be happy. Everything else before that's just the struggle and the toil for me to finally get to the place where I'm going to finally get the joy that I want in my life. Or it's the recreation that you have in your life, the things that you enjoy. Like some of us, maybe it's like, if I could just get in the gym and do a little bit more CrossFit, then I would truly be joyful. If I could finally just have the amount of time that I could get away from work to do more traveling, that I really go to the places that I enjoy. I just love hopping on the plane and going across the seas or whatever it might be for you. If you could just have more space for you to do the things that you find to be joyful, then life would be good. Then we even attach it to our relationships. I mean, we don't realize that we're doing this, but it's this huge weight that we put on other people because we're trying to extract joy out of a relationship with that person. It, here's what this looks like, all right? If I could finally find the one. If I could finally find the person that I could just settle down in life with, that I could finally have a person that I come home to that is there that I can cry on their shoulder whenever life is really hard, that whenever I, I get giggly and I can laugh, I can do the belly laugh and not have them think that I'm crazy or weird because I snort when I laugh. And whatever it might be for you, if I finally had that person, then I would truly find joy. You see, all of these things, none of them are necessarily bad. But we, what we end up doing is we use them in order to go on our joy chase in this life and we associate a burden or a weight on them that they cannot shoulder. They can't carry it. And so the problem is that these things, they never seem to satisfy our cravings for joy, do they? Like we may get them for a moment. There may seem to be like this moment of joy that we get out of them, but it always seems a little fleeting, doesn't it? I, I've quoted this already in our series, but I'm going to say it again. Jim Carrey, um, a prominent actor that all of us have watched, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Then you have guys like Tom Brady, the football player, who's literally, there's no other quarterback that has won as many Super Bowls as he has. Yet at the end of a Super Bowl run, he sits down with 60 minutes and literally tears are coming down his face and he asks the question, is this it? Is this it? 
Like, there's got to be more than this. I mean, the most recent thing might even be like the royal family over in England. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you've watched the Netflix series The Crown or if you watched the, the interview with Oprah, like, it seems like the message is clear from both of them of, like, our pursuit of joy is not working. On the outside, it looks like they literally have everything that every single one of us would want. But what comes out of the, the binging of Netflix or sitting down and watching the Oprah interview, it's saying it looks good on the outside, but on the inside, we are miserable. You see, the problem isn't our desire for joy, but it's our pursuit of it. I think one pastor puts it really well. It's an old pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, according to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. You see, what this pastor is saying is that joy, if it's to be attained at all, results not from being an end goal, but a byproduct. Not an end goal, but a byproduct. You see, if you make joy your main objective, it's always going to be the greased up pig. You think that you have it in your fingertips, but it always seems to slip out. You can never finally get that firm grip on joy in order to keep it because if it's your main objective, it's always, always going to slip out of your grips. But... All right, if your focus isn't on joy, but on something else entirely, then joy comes with it. It's the byproduct. Look, the something else that, according to Jesus, that he's speaking about here is righteousness. It's righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Which leads us to the question of what I kind of set us up for at the beginning. Well, what is righteousness? If it's so important, if it's literally the thing that we're supposed to crave, the hunger and thirst after this, if it's the thing that might ultimately bring us joy, then what is righteousness? All right, so here's, here's my short definition. All right, I'm just going to say it out loud. I'm going to have you repeat it with me here in a second. Righteousness means that you are right with God because you're free from sin. All right, say that with me. Because I'm right with God, because I'm right with God, say it. There you go. Because I'm free from sin. I'm right with God because I'm free from sin. See, there's a moral or ethical standard that all of us are to live by. The person who is righteous lives by this moral and ethical standard because they have acted rightly. And by acting rightly, they maintain right standing in relation to God and to others as well. They are free from sin. And according to the Bible, the moral or ethical standard by which we are all to live is literally the law of God, the commands of Christ. And that's why Jesus says just a few verses later in Matthew 5, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill and here he shows the importance of it, all right? Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the really, the really critical piece, all right? The Bible tells us that when righteousness, obedience to God's commands, right standing, the freedom from sin, 
when this is our primary objective and we abide by these commands, then the gift or the byproduct is joy. You see that? Jesus gets at this. We looked at this passage just a a few weeks ago, John chapter 15. I think he sums it up so well for us. He says, if you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Now look at this. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. See, here's what Jesus is saying. I have perfectly kept all of God's commands. All of them. I have perfectly kept every single one of them, which means that I have walked perfectly with God in this life. I've never had a broken relationship with my Father who is in heaven. And listen, I have joy. I have this immeasurable joy that is in my life because I do not have broken relationship with God. And here's the thing that I got out of it. I got God. I got right walking with my father who is in heaven. I never had broken relationship and what it produced in my life was joy. And since I have this thing called joy in my life because I have been righteous, I've walked with God, I've obeyed his commands, I maintained relationship with him, I've never wronged him or anyone else on this earth, I have found the pattern, I have found the way and I want this for you. That's what Jesus is declaring in John chapter 15. He's saying, I have found God. I have found righteousness. And the byproduct was joy. So this is what I think Jesus is communicating to us in the fourth beatitude. If joy is what you want, what our whole world wants, what we want, if joy is what we really want, then you must realize that you'll never possess it or get a firm grip on it if it's your primary objective. It only comes as a byproduct. So what he's saying is make righteousness your primary objective and then you get God. And as you get God, the byproduct is joy. The thing that every single one of us want out of this life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, before we move on to some application, I want to kind of give a, I want to unpack a little bit to give us a better picture of what Jesus means by this word righteousness here, so that we can then pursue it in our life. All right, so here's, here's the first one, all right? This righteousness, it's inward and outward. It's inward and outward. If you're a note taker, this is the time that you can start taking notes, all right? So when it comes to righteousness, we know that God is concerned both not just with our conduct, but also our hearts. See, God is equally concerned, if not more so about our heart than our actions, the outward things that we do in this life. We know this by what Jesus says about righteousness just a few paragraphs later in Matthew 5, 20. Here's what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is interesting because the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones that you would commonly associate with those who live morally or ethically. 
If you wanted a pattern in this life for what it looked like to follow the commands of God, the people that you would have commonly looked to at this point in time were the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus here is saying, no, 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 you have to go even further beyond than the scribes and Pharisees if you truly want to be great in my kingdom, which would have been very confusing for those people that were around Jesus at this point in time, since they were the righteous ones in their eyes. But God sees more than just the conduct. He sees our hearts, which means that he could look beyond the outward surface of the scribes and Pharisees, and he could peer into their soul. And here's what he says. They're nothing more than an impressive tombstone. He says, they have these wonderful, they're wonderful with their rule keeping and they're charming with their words. But if you really get down six feet down below the surface, they're nothing but dead rotting bones. We see this in Matthew 23. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law, which is scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteousness, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, the righteousness that Jesus speaks of here in this beatitude is not just outward, but it's also inward. He wants our lives and our hearts to be aligned. He wants the outward actions that others see to look the same in our hearts that only God can see. He wants to see that our outward righteousness is also an inward righteousness, that the outside and the inside both match, they align. Like a car that's driving, if your car's out of alignment, it wants to pull a different direction than the way that you're really trying to steer it to go. What God is saying is, I want you to be aligned. I want both your outward actions and I want your inward self to both be aligned, headed in the same direction. You may be able to fool people on the outside, but I see beyond what's on the outside. I see what's on the inside. You must be aligned. This righteousness is both outward and inward. And then secondly, he said this is a desired but not possessed righteousness. See, the first point should cause us to hold our breath a bit, right? Like that's a, a steep mountain for us to climb, both in outward and inward righteousness, like in outward actions that we're supposed to follow the commands of God, but also inwardly we're supposed to do that. This seems like a really steep mountain for us to climb. But the second point should cause us all to publicly kind of communally exhale a bit, all right? So Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after this righteousness. Meaning like, I want this. I, I want this outward and inward righteousness for my life. Not only do I want it, not only do I long for it, like I crave it. Like a starving person, a person that's on their deathbed because they just need a drop of water. I, I crave for it, but I don't necessarily possess it. I realize it's something that I want and that I need, but here I am, poor in spirit, mourning over my sin. I'm meek, I'm humble, I'm helpless. I want this, but I don't have it. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
See, what we need to remember about a person that hungers and thirsts is first, they know their need. Like it's blatantly obvious to them. Jesus isn't talking about like a hunger and thirst of someone that's just like ready for the next meal. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Like he's talking about the person that you can see the bones in their rib cage because their stomach is like so small and so absent of food that they're, they know absolutely their need for food. Or the person that's like white at the lips because they don't have the water that they need in order for their body to continue to survive. They know, they know what they need. But they also, secondly, realize that they're completely dependent. You see, a person that lives in a barren land where there is no food, where there is no water, they absolutely know how dependent they are on someone for outside resources in order for them to survive. And that's the picture that Jesus has given us here of the person that's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's not this, des- it's this desired but not possessed righteousness. Like they know that there's nothing that they can do to change their situation, that someone else outside of them absolutely has to provide for them or they're going to starve or they're going to dehydrate to death. So first, it's an outward and an inward righteousness. The second, it's a desired but not necessarily a possessed righteousness. And then thirdly, it's filled with hope and not despair. Our desire for righteousness does not lead us to despair. Rather, it's filled with hope because of the promise that we find at the end of it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Look, for they will be filled. See, one of the more historic football games that's, I'm, I'm going to get sports on you for a second, but stick with me. I promise I'm not going to stay there. All right. Stick with me. All right. So one of the more historic football games that's happened throughout the human history is happened in 1987. All right. This is in the AFC championship game. All right. Which means if you're like not into sports, that's the game right before the Super Bowl. All right. So you win, you go to the Super Bowl. All right. So here's what's going on in this game. All right. The game is between the Denver Broncos and the Cleveland Browns. This is the Cleveland Browns haven't been good since 1987, apparently. And there's about five minutes left in the game. The Broncos, they're down by a touchdown. All right. So five minutes left in the game, they're down by a touchdown. And to make matters worse, one of their players has just made a huge blunder and has literally put their back against their end zone. So you have five minutes left, down by a touchdown, and literally have to go the full length of the field to try to tie the game. All right. So everything seems stacked against them. They're losing. The time is running out. The game is actually in Cleveland. So all the fans are cheering against them. They don't want them to be able to drive down the full length of the field. And a big mistake was just made. So the morale is really, really low. So the Broncos, they come from the sideline. Their offense comes from the sideline. They come and they get in the huddle. It's where everybody kind of gets in a circle and they all have like their arms on each other's shoulders. Like, okay, here we go. We're going to try to do this. But one of the offensive linemen that's in the actual game, he gets into the huddle and he looks around at his, his um, teammates. And as he looks around at his teammates, he can just see all their heads are just dejected. He looks up at the scoreboard and he sees there's time is running out and he sees the score that they're down. Then he looks around at the fans and everybody's cheering against them, literally wanting them to do their absolute worst, right? So he looks at all this, then he brings his head back down to the rest of his teammates, and he looks at his teammates in the eyes. He goes, fellas, 
We've got them right where we want them. And you know what happened? They went, they drove down the full length of the field, they tied the game, they ended up going to overtime, they won the game, and they went to the Super Bowl. Now, this whole drive, this one, play, this one thing where they went down the full length of the field, it's now historically known as the drive. Can you imagine being a part of a moment like that where you got to see a team rally, you went in the midst of all the opposition, and you actually did the thing. You went to the Super Bowl, like you actually accomplished it. Now, each week in this Beatitude series, we kind of looked ahead to this point, all right? We've made a jump to the gospel, the hope and forgiveness that we have in Christ every single week. But what we need to realize is that Jesus' listeners, they don't have that perspective, all right? They didn't, literally as they're hearing the Beatitudes, they only hear the one after the other as it rolls off Jesus' lips. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Like, that, that was it until Jesus moved on to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Then blessed are those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. Those are, those are, it's literally at the end of every sentence. That's all that they get. They also don't know Jesus' like the, the finality of Jesus' ministry. Like they don't know how his life ends. They don't know about the cross yet. They don't know about the resurrection. They don't have any of this insight. So as they're hearing all of this, they're hearing poor in spirit that you've recognized that sin has wrecked your life, that blessed are those who mourn, that are broken over their own personal sinfulness. Blessed are those who are humble, that realize that they're completely incapable. As they're hearing all of this, they're just completely dejected. I mean, the face is down low. Jesus is saying, hey, I need an outward and an inward righteousness. And they're like, I don't have it. He's saying, I I need alignment in your life. I need to make sure that you're going, both your heart and your life are going in the same direction. And they're like, that's not me. I I need someone that, they're pursuing after God. They're they're going after God. Their life models after mine. They're like, that's not me. And as their heads are down, they're dejected, they don't know what to do, they're looking at the scorecard of their life, and they're like, there's nothing left, they're looking at the rest of their life, I I don't know the pattern, then Jesus looks in the eye and says, fellas, I got you right where I want you. Because here's the thing, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Here's the good news of the gospel. The righteousness that God wants, perfect on the inside and the outside. The righteousness that we so desperately need, God supplies it for us through Jesus himself. See, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, look at this, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like you and me, the poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek and the humble. God makes us the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, a great former pastor, called this the great exchange. 
And here's what the verse means, that we need righteousness to be fully accepted by God. That's God's requirement. We have to be right with God. We have to have followed all of the commands of God in order for us to be fully accepted. But the reality is that none of us possess it. All that we have is our sin. God has what we need, but we don't deserve in righteousness. Instead, we have what God despises and rejects, which is our sin. And here's God's answer to our problem. It's his one and only son. Jesus, the son of God, who is perfectly sinless, completely righteous. You see, through his death, Jesus takes our sin and receives the punishment we deserve upon himself. In exchange, he gives us his perfect standing with God, his righteousness, See, our sin goes to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us. And this all happens, listen, not by us finally figuring out the way that we go and we live and move forward in this life. It's not by us by finding the cheat code or finding the scorecard and editing it out and all the things that we have done wrong. No, it's by complete faith. God's saying, look, all I'm asking you to do is to put your worst foot forward. I'm not asking for you to try to clean up your life before you come to me. You can't do it. You're the poor in spirit. You're those who mourn over your sin. You you know your place. You're meek and you're humble. You're incapable. He says, I've got you right where I want you. The only thing that I require is that you put your worst foot forward, that you trust in absolute faith what Christ has done for you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says it perfectly for us. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Listen, if you want joy, if you want blessedness in this life, you won't find it by chasing it. You won't find it by chasing it. It only comes as a byproduct of righteousness. And the gift is God himself, and then the joy is the byproduct that you get God in this life, not just for the rest of eternity, but here in the now. And this righteousness is found only in Christ and his righteousness in exchange for our sin. So here's our application, all right? Here's three points for us. First one is this, be filled. That's the promise of this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Look at the promise that Jesus gives to his listeners. For they will be filled. He's saying, look, I'm here. Like, you don't know what I'm going to do yet. You and I do. We know what happened. We know that he lived this life perfectly. No sin in him whatsoever. And then he tells us that no one can take his life from him, but he gives it freely. And that's exactly what he went and did. He knew that the only way for us to be made righteous before God is if he went and completely consumed our sin and paid the punishment that we couldn't pay for ourselves on the cross. He said, I'll, I'll go do it for you. I'll stand in your place. And he did it and he went, he stayed on the cross 
the pain and the agony of his father abandoning him, turning his back on him as he was now the completely unrighteous. He turned his back on him. He paid our punishment. God, he did it in full. And then three days later, the death could not hold him back. He was resurrected from the grave so that you and I can walk in this, the hope of the end of this beatitude that we may be filled. Not just those people that remain hungry and thirsty and craving and desiring. No, he says, I've done it all for you so that you may be filled. So look, the first application for you is to come and to be filled. Completely trust in what Christ has done that you could not do for yourself. Be filled. He takes all of your sin and gives you all of his righteousness. The second one is feed your appetite. Feed your appetite. Look, there's an immediacy to the righteousness that comes in knowing Christ when we put our worst foot forward and we place our full trust in what Jesus has done. But there's also this process throughout this life called sanctification, where slowly as we walk with Jesus in this life, we put to death this former way of life that we once lived in, and now we continue to walk in the opposite direction following the pattern in the life that Jesus gave to us. And we are able to do this because the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in this new life. So what Jesus is telling us is, blessed are those who hunger and those who thirst after righteousness. So look, if you are the person that's put your worst foot forward, you've trusted in Jesus, then keep feeding your appetite. Pursue the righteousness that God has called you in this life. Listen, like, if you were to get a fishbowl and you're, you had a goldfish that was in it, you wouldn't look at the goldfish and say, you know what? This fishbowl has completely confined you. You're not fully free. You're not enjoying life that it, the way it was intended for it to be enjoyed. Let me help you. And you, take, you put your hand into the fishbowl, you scoop out the fish, and you lay it on the table. And you're like, finally, you're free. Look, the whole world is available to you now. Go and enjoy it. You can do anything that you want. Is that the most loving thing to do for the goldfish? No. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's not the most enjoyable thing for the goldfish. That's the path and the pattern towards death. Look, following the, obey, the commandments, obeying the commandments of God is not the absence of joy in your life. He's not pulling you away from the things that are going to bring joy in your life. Rather, he's saying this is the pattern. This is the path. This is the way for you to experience joy as it's intended to be lived. You pursue righteousness, and as you pursue righteousness, you get God. Like, he's here in your life. You get to enjoy him now. There's no broken relationship if you pursue righteousness. So be the person that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for you will be filled. So listen, Christian, feed your appetite. Keep coming back to the Bible. Like, make it your food. Like, come back to it. Consume it. Bring it into your life, not just like chew on it and then swallow. Like, no, like be like a, a cow and chew on it like the cud. Like keep coming back to it. Keep coming back to it. Don't swallow it too quickly. Like keep coming, keep pursuing, keep going after Jesus. Feed your appetite. And then thirdly, anticipate the feast. 
Anticipate the feast. Look, God gives us Christ's righteousness the moment we believe. Absolutely. We work with the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ's likeness. We are sanctified as we walk through this life with him. Yes, but there is coming a day, Christian, when we will be made into the likeness of Christ forever. No more sin, no more brokenness, no more hurt, no more pain. You'll be completely made like Jesus himself. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says this, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. What this is saying is that when we see Jesus face to face, he's going to make us completely like himself. He gives us a resurrected body. Look, Jesus makes us immediately like himself spiritually. We can come, he's torn down the curtain. There's nothing that separates or divides us from God himself. If we trusted fully in Jesus, you have complete access. Your sin for his righteousness, he does it. You keep pursuing Jesus throughout this life and as you do it with the strength of the Holy Spirit, he makes you more like Jesus, he sanctifies you. But look, there's coming a day, there is coming a day where Jesus is gonna make you exactly like himself. He's going to give you his perfect righteousness, not just something that's credited to your account. He's going to make it full reality for you. You experience it in everything that you do and everything that you look at in this earth, that righteousness comes down. It's going to be made perfect. And you get to walk and you get to live and you got to be with Jesus himself. Look, be filled now. Be filled now. Feed your appetite. Pursue Jesus. Don't give up. Keep going. But look, at the same time, have an end vision of where you're going. Anticipate the feast. The time and the day and the point, it's coming. Live with that end in your sight. Stand firm. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep toiling. Keep steadfast in going after Jesus. Anticipate the feast. Let's conclude with this, all right? This is a quote from um, Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. If you haven't got this book, I would encourage you. It's a great book for you to read. I think he summarizes everything that we've been saying really well. He says, everyone wants to be happy. I'm sweating profusely, y'all. <laughs> like it's dripping down my back. I'm hot. I'm so sorry. We will we'll try to figure out what's going on here. Here's what he says. Everyone wants to be happy, to be blessed. Too many people are willfully refusing to pay attention to the one who wills our happiness and ignorantly supposing that the Christian way is a harder way to get what they want than doing it on their own. They are wrong. You hear that? They are wrong. God's ways and God's presence are where we experience the happiness that lasts. Be filled. Be filled. Feed your appetite. 
and anticipate the feast. Let's pray. Father, I, I come and I say that I don't have that righteousness on my own. I don't, God. But I want it. I need it. Help me crave it more. Would, would you also help those that are in this room to feel the same? God, would we be filled? Listen, God, if there is someone here this, tonight that doesn't know you yet, that hasn't put that worst foot forward yet, that feels like they need to clean up their act before they come to you, I pray that they would realize that that's not what you want. That's not what you want. You want us to come as we are. And may we take that first step tonight. And may we be filled, maybe for the very first time. For those of us that have walked with you, but maybe, just maybe, we've kind of given up on the desire, the, the pursuit of righteousness in our life. Would we feed our appetite? Would we get around people that are they're going to point us in the direction that, no, keep going, keep going. They're there to encourage us to keep going, to remain in Jesus. May we feed our appetite. And then lastly, Will we catch the vision, the envision that you've given us in Jesus, and may we anticipate the feast. Where we don't just get to dabble, but we get to take on the full thing. I look forward for the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we declare that we need you. We want you. Would you come, and would you make your home inside of us? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.